Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two flesh, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's take a minute and pray and uh, ask God to help us understand this part of his word well. Will you please pray with me? Father, we come and ask that you would be at work here this morning as we cover a topic that is difficult for some, if not most, or all of us to really reflect on and think about as we look at what the scriptures and what Jesus himself says about the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that you have called us to follow you and that you are our king and have authority over us, but you are also gracious, kind, and loving, that you provide us with the strength and the power that we need to obey you through the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that this morning you would be at work in this place, that you would use every part of your word uh, to equip us to obey Jesus Christ, to understand the gospel, to more and more be transformed into the image of Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we need to jump right in because we've got a lot to cover. Uh, This is going to be, just by the way, more of a content-driven sort of teaching sermon. Here at Christ Church, we are um, committed to going through books of the Bible in an expository fashion. That is, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as our main diet of teaching. And that means that sometimes we come across topics or sermons or texts that are difficult that we might just want to skip over. And this might be one of those for you this morning. Uh, To be honest, I feel a little bit of of trepidation and angst this morning as we come and cover this subject because, um, you know, the reason for that obviously is that the subject of divorce particularly is a, is a really difficult topic. Um, in about, I've been a pastor almost for 10 years now, 9, 10 years, and in 10 years of ministry, there's no more, there's no issue, no single issue that I have seen more regularly uh, need pastoral help with than the issue of divorce and remarriage. It's something that has affected me personally, it's affected Marianne personally, and my guess is every single person sitting in this room this morning has in some way been affected or impacted by divorce. Um, So I recognize that this is a sensitive and a deeply personal issue for many of you. But having recognized that, I want to tell you again that Christ Church is a place where we are committed to doing what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, to speaking the truth in love. And this morning we're going to look at what Jesus and what the scriptures teach about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And also we want to reaffirm, listen, we want to reaffirm our commitment to being a place, a community of people for people who have been broken. 
and who have made mistakes and who have sinned or been affected by the sin of others. And we want to reaffirm our commitment to the truth that grace, the grace of Jesus, is greater than all of our sin. Grace is sufficient. There is mercy to be found from God for all who have gone through divorce or been drastically impacted by divorce. So let's make it our goal today to listen, not to my words, but to the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus Christ, our King, and seek to humble ourselves under his kingship and to rest in the love of Jesus for us, no matter what we've gone through. Okay, so that said, we need to jump right in. Um, Jesus is walking on the way to Jerusalem with his disciples, and part of what's going on is that he's teaching his disciples on the way what commitment to Jesus, what following Jesus looks like, what it's going to entail. And as he's going, he also is facing issues or debate topics from his antagonists, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And that's what we see going on here. The Pharisees come in verse 2, and they ask Jesus, is it lawful, do you see there, is it it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And Mark, the writer of the gospel, I hope you noticed, goes out of the way to tell us that the Pharisees said this to Jesus for a particular purpose, in order to test him. In order to test him. So you see, the Pharisees are not like neutral, dispassionate people that just sort of have this theological inquiry. No, they are after Jesus. They want to trap him. They want him to stumble over his words. They want him to enter into a debate that they had all the time. And we'll talk more about that debate here in just a minute. And what Jesus does is remarkable. What he does is remarkable. Jesus answers a question phrased negatively about a negative thing, divorce, mainly by primarily teaching about a positive thing. Marriage. So we have here in consolidated form a straightforward view of Jesus' own position on marriage, on divorce, and on remarriage. Now, other parts of the scripture need to be brought into this discussion to aid our understanding of what is really a complex issue. So keep your Bibles handy. We'll have text come up in a minute on the screen, but I, and we'll put those up. But let's look at this passage really by breaking it into three really simple sections, okay? Three points. Jesus on marriage first, second, Jesus on divorce, and then thirdly, Jesus on remarriage. That's where we're headed, okay? We're going to see what Jesus says about marriage, what Jesus says about divorce, and what Jesus says about remarriage. So first, Jesus on marriage. We find that mainly in verses 6 through 9. And in response to the Pharisees' testing question, Jesus, we read, gives positive teaching on what marriage itself is. And really, that's the big, big idea, the main point of the entire passage. Jesus wants to reinforce the Bible's teaching on marriage. And the question the Pharisees are asking here is really, tell me the loopholes, right? Tell me the loopholes in, in marriage, the Pharisees want to know, when is it okay for me to get out of it? And Jesus, his reply is to teach what God himself says about marriage. One theologian wrote this, The Pharisees' primary interest lay in seeing how far they could go and still remain within the letter of the law. But Jesus' primary interest was in restoring men to the lifestyle for which they had been made. 
And what he does is expand on the ancient teachings of Scripture from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 to tell us what marriage was designed to be by God. Now, let me just point out two things about Jesus' view on marriage. Two things, okay? First, first, marriage is God's institution. Marriage is defined by God. God created marriage, and God sets the parameters of marriage. That's the whole point of Jesus going back to the first chapters of the entire Bible here in Genesis 1 and 2. He quotes from Genesis 1.27, God made them male and female, there in verse 6. And then he quotes from Genesis 2.24 in the next verse um, when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The reason Jesus is quoting those verses from Genesis is that he wants to reaffirm that marriage is something from the very beginning of creation that was initiated, instituted, and defined by God himself. That is indisputable in the scriptural account. And according to God, Marriage is a lifelong, committed union between one man and one woman. God is the one, we read there, who joins two people into one flesh, verse 8 and verse 9. God is the one who creates this new union, who makes two people one in a certain sense. And so let's just take a time out for a second and say this. Whatever else um, we say about the current debate in our country and in Western society about redefining marriage, this must be a foundational piece of the discussion for those who follow Jesus, especially as we interact with our friends who aren't Christians in the public square. Okay, We want to love those who oppose us. We're committed to loving those who disagree with us on this issue, to loving intently the homosexual community in particular. But we also are committed to holding fast to this truth and to stand under the truth of God's word. Marriage is defined clearly here by Jesus and by God. No man and no woman has the right to change the parameters that God has set down. No man or woman has the right to redefine marriage. And the reason Christians say that is because we believe that fundamentally marriage is not a social contract or a social construct. But marriage is, on the other hand, a divine institution. So if you want to know why Christians sometimes seem to be so inflexible on the traditional, so to speak, understanding of marriage, the answer, among other things, is that we are committed to the authority of the Bible. Everyone is committed to some authority. Christians are committed primarily to the truth and the authority of God's word. And the Bible clearly tells us that marriage is to be defined in this way by God himself. And so where God speaks, we must follow. So marriage, the first thing to note about it is that it is God's institution. It is defined by God. And secondly, Jesus' view on marriage, it's not so much explicit in this text as implicit, but it's certainly explicit in other parts of the Bible. Here's the second thing I want you to hear about marriage. Marriage exists, the purpose of marriage is to show the glory of God's grace in the gospel. That's implicit in Jesus quoting Genesis 1.27, when he says, God made them male and female. Part of being made in God's image, both as men and as women, equal in dignity and honor, means 
Part of what that means is that when a man and a woman unite in marriage and, as the scriptures say, form one flesh or one union, somehow that is a reflection or a mirror or an image of God's own character, of God's own glory. And furthermore, we see elsewhere in the Bible, especially in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, that marriage itself is sort of this human relational picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Listen, marriage primarily is a living metaphor of the relationship, of the union that Jesus Christ has with his own people, with his bride, as the scriptures call us, with the church. Someone once wrote this, Paul, the apostle Paul, saw that when God designed the original marriage in the garden, he, had alre- he already had Christ and the church in mind. This is one of God's great purposes in marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. Listen, the gospel and marriage explain one another. They are both, at the end of the day, about the sacrificial love of one person for another person. And through marriage, the experiential power of the gospel in our lives is unveiled. So marriage is both a picture of and a major vehicle for the gospel's remaking of our hearts from the inside out. Now, here's what the gospel is. The gospel is that God knows how sinful we are. He knows every ounce of our rebellion against him. He knows all about our hard-heartedness and our selfishness and our pride and our egos. And yet, even though he knows us that well, he still loves us. He still pursues us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He loves us enough to sacrifice his own son on the cross so that those who have run from God, so that those who have turned away from God, so that those who are rebels against God might again experience life and fellowship, might again experience forgiveness and hope and joy and peace. The gospel is that God knows that you are actually worse than you think you are. But even though God knows that about you and about me, he still loves us more than we think he does. The gospel is that you are worse off than you ever thought, but you are more loved by God in Jesus than you ever dared dream possible. Now, marriage, more than any other human relationship, is a vivid picture and metaphor of that exact sort of love. You see, when you get married, and I know some of you are newlyweds, um, there's no hiding or at least there shouldn't be. You're not going to hide successfully for long. It's going to cause damage when you're hiding in marriage. When you're married, you get to see what another person, your spouse, is really like. Amen? And they get to see what you are really like. You get to see the depths of another person's woundedness and brokenness and sinfulness. And they see all those things about you as well. And in a marriage like that, you have the opportunity to believe that God has loved you even though he knows you, and then in that power to love your husband or wife even though you know them, to love them sacrificially 
through the power of knowing what God has done for us in Jesus, we go out and do something likewise in our own households, with our husbands, with our wives. You see, marriage exists as a picture of the gospel and as a means, as a way of experiencing the gospel more and more. That's why God designed it. That's why God loves marriage. And that is also why divorce, which we come to now, is such a tragic thing. So Jesus' teaching on marriage, the Bible's teaching on, on marriage, consists really of two things. Marriage is defined by God first, and secondly, marriage is the primary human relational picture of the gospel. And perhaps the primary way of experiencing through community, through relationships, the power of the gospel transforming your own Life. That's Jesus on marriage here in Mark 10 and elsewhere. Secondly, I want to show you Jesus' view on divorce and also the Bible's view on divorce in this passage. Jesus does answer the actual question of the Pharisees back in verse 2. And in his response, I really want to just show you two things that Jesus says about divorce, okay? We saw two things about marriage, now two things about divorce. First, divorce is always the result of sin. Divorce is always the result of sin. In chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus, commenting on um, the Old Testament divorce laws, which we're going to look at in just a minute, says, Moses wrote this commandment because of what? Because of your hardness of heart. In other words, the reason that divorce, the formal dissolution of marriages, the reason that divorce exists is because sin exists. Now listen, I am not saying that every divorce is sinful. I am not saying that. However, I am saying that every divorce is a result of sin. Think about it this way. If God were to take like a big spiritual vacuum cleaner and suck all of the sin out of the universe so that there's no more sin, then all of the divorce in the universe would also be sucked away. There would be no more divorce. Where sin exists, divorce exists. Divorce exists because sin exists. It exists because we are rebels against God. Because as Jesus says, we are hard-hearted. As the Old Testament says, we are a stiff-necked people. And that causes fracturing and tragedy, both in our relationships with God and in our relationships with one another. Now let me say here briefly that that is not primarily the way that our culture now views divorce. That it's always a result of sin and therefore always tragic. And so it needs to be said again. Our culture tends to believe that divorce is a way to solve our problems, right? And it does need to be said that overall that is not a biblical view of divorce. It simply isn't. Divorce is allowable in certain cases, as we will see in a second, but it is not hardly ever a problem solver. In fact, it is a tragic result of human sin and living in a broken and sick world. And it almost always affects people. It almost always affects entire family trees in ways that the divorcees rarely will even know in their own lifetimes. So it's worth taking a sober look at the truth of Jesus here. It's worth saying clearly that divorce is a terrible thing. It is a result of sin. It is something, as scriptures tell us in the Old Testament, that God himself hates because it ruins what he made so good. So first, divorce is always the result of sin. That's not to say that every divorce is sinful, but it is always the result of sin being in the world. 
Yet, secondly, we see here in this passage and elsewhere in the scripture that in certain instances and in some ways, God does regulate divorce. Now, notice how carefully I put that. It's hard because I want to be clear what the Bible's teaching is. Divorce is bad. But in certain instances and in some ways, sometimes God does regulate it. There are certain situations in which divorce is permissible. And that really is at the heart of this debate that Jesus enters into in our story. When Jesus asks there in verse 3, what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees respond in verse 4. They're quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4. So we need to take just a second, bear with me, and try and stick with me in your heads. We need to take time to read those verses from the Old Testament ourselves. So let's look at it. Josh, do you have that up? Can you throw up Deuteronomy 24? Let me find it here myself. This is the main text that was under debate in those days. Let me read it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, now that's important, some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Okay, let me stop there. I know that's a lot to take in if you haven't been looking at it all week as I have, but let me just say, the actual command there, if you read carefully, is simply that a husband who has divorced his wife, and then if that wife goes and marries a second man, and he divorces her, her, or the second man dies, then the first husband can't remarry her. Now, that's confusing, I know. Welcome to the Old Testament. If you want to talk more about that, you're welcome to come talk to me after the sermon. That's the actual command, okay? You can't take back a wife that you booted out, right, if the second husband dies or divorces her. But underlying that whole idea is that in some instances, what the Old Testament calls a certificate or a bill of divorce is a valid thing among God's people. Namely, when some indecency, 24-1, is found in the woman. Now, the debate, listen, the debate in Jesus' day among Jewish rabbis was around the issue, what constituted something indecent? quote, unquote, Deuteronomy 24.1. And therefore, what constitutes a valid divorce or valid legitimate grounds for divorce? And there were two major positions. The first was the school of a rabbi whose name was Shammai. And it can be called the conservative view. And what Shammai said is that when Moses speaks there of something indecent in Deuteronomy 24.1, he's referring to some type of sexual sin. Namely to adultery. That's the conservative view. That the only time you can write your wife a bill of divorce is when she's committed adultery. Then there was another view from another rabbi whose name was Hillel. You can call this the liberal view. It was also the vast, vast majority position in Jesus' day. Hillel and his followers, all of whom the Pharisees were his followers, clearly, their view was that something indecent refers to anything that the husband finds unappealing. To anything that the husband doesn't like. And there's all sorts of rabbinical tradition, rabbinical scholars that would say that you could divorce your wife if she burned dinner. 
Seriously. That you could divorce her if she annoys you. If she doesn't accept your control in some instance. Really, you could divorce her for any reason whatsoever. For anything that irks you or bothers you, you have legitimate grounds for divorce. So what the Pharisees are asking Jesus here is, Jesus, do you follow Shammai, the conservative view, or do you follow Hillel and the liberal majority view when it comes to the grounds of a valid divorce? Everybody with me? Okay. And so what Jesus says in response is that these people are misusing the original intent of God's law. What Deuteronomy 24 is about is that it's intended to provide some regulation for divorce in only a few specific instances. Yet the Pharisees here have made it a loophole to secure a divorce any time the husband wanted one. Here's what one commentator says. The legal provision of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 was not intended as a statement of God's purpose for marriage, not intended for that, but as a regrettable but necessary means of limiting the damage when that purpose has already been abandoned. It is a provision to deal with human hard-heartedness, not a point to the way things ought to be. So Jesus here very clearly rejects the idea that divorce can merely be secured and be legitimate because of what we call today irreconcilable differences. So the question then immediately comes into some of our minds, what were the legitimate grounds? What are the grounds that would constitute, as the Old Testament says, something indecent? In what instances is it valid to get a divorce? Well, it's important to see again here in Mark, I want everyone to hear this. Jesus provides zero loopholes. There are no grounds in Mark's gospel for a divorce. I don't want us to lose sight of the idea that divorce is a terrible thing. It is not something that God desires. Yet, in other parts of the Bible, there are two traditional biblical exceptions to what Jesus says there in verses 11 and 12 in particular. There are two legitimate grounds for divorce according to the teaching of scripture. So quickly, let me talk about them. The first is found in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Josh, can you put that up on the screen? This is a parallel passage. It's the exact same scenario from Matthew's account rather than from Mark's account. So this is the same text, same setting, same discussion. And Jesus says here, Matthew includes in chapter 19, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for, except, this is not in Mark, but it's in Matthew, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So the word there for sexual immorality, I hate using Greek words, but I have to do it here. The word is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. And the word porneia in Greek is what I call a junk drawer term. You know, you have a junk drawer, you open it up, there's a few pens, there's some gum that you spit out probably, some paper clips, who knows what's in there. That's kind of what porneia is. It's a term that covers a broad lexical range. It can mean a number of different things. And in the ancient Greek and Roman world, when the word porneia was used, it's translated here in the ESV as sexual immorality. What it means is all manner of sexual sin, including fornication, adultery, bestiality, homosexual practice, and pedophilia, among other things. So typically, the church has used the word to refer, in a case of marriage and divorce, to adultery. Let me put it clearly. If a spouse commits adultery, the offended party 
according to Matthew 19.9 and other passages, has a legitimate ground for divorce. He or she is not required or commanded or compelled to get divorced, but they are allowed to get a divorce if there cannot be reconciliation. That is the first exception, the first ground that would constitute a biblical divorce, adultery, porneia, sexual immorality. The second one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is another letter of the Apostle Paul. And here Paul's writing to the church about people that are married, and one of the two spouses, either the husband or the wife, becomes a Christian, and the other person isn't a Christian. And if the non-Christian spouse leaves... If she says, I don't want to go to church with you. I don't want to have anything to do with your God and your Jesus. I'm out of here. Paul says in that instance, the Christian spouse is allowed to let that person go. That's the literal wording. And so theologians and Bible scholars have built upon what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 7 and said that if someone abandons his or her spouse, if they leave and aren't coming back, that would be a second legitimate ground for divorce. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, and 16 that the Christian should let him or her go for the purpose of keeping peace. That's the other way that God has regulated divorce. Now, here's where it gets sticky because the question can always be raised, what exactly constitutes abandonment? Does abandonment have to be physical absence and distance? Is there such a thing as emotional abandonment, although the spouse is still physically present? Now, those are very hard questions. And what I will say here is that that requires wisdom of elders in a church and often should be taken in a case-by-case basis under the authority of Scripture. But I do believe that it is certainly possible, such as in a case of abuse, for example, to actually constitute something as abandonment, even if the other person is still physically present. Again, if you want to talk more about these things, I'm happy to meet with you. But let me summarize. I know that's a lot of info, but we've got to lay it out here, okay? Let's sum it up like this. Jesus is opposed to divorce, and he believes that it is always a result of human sin. However, to preserve certain relationships and individuals from becoming even more drastically affected by sin, there are certain regulations for divorce as a result of living in a broken world that Jesus allows in some instances. Okay? So Jesus on marriage is that the marriage is a reflection of the gospel. The beauty of marriage is a picture of the beauty of the gospel. Jesus on divorce is what we've just looked at. Now, thirdly, and much more briefly, Jesus on remarriage, okay? Unfortunately, this has to be pretty brief. Let's see. Yeah, it has to be real brief. Uh, Although this might be the most complex issue. (laughs) See how I did that? Brief, but complex. Uh, We need to take a look at Jesus' view on remarriage. So in verse 10, back in Mark 10, Jesus' disciples ask him in the house about this matter, which probably means that his disciples were Hillelites, in other words. They, They thought that divorce is legitimate on any grounds, and they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're going against the majority here, right? I mean, surely I can boot my wife if she burns dinner, right? 
And Jesus actually reemphasizes with even more force what he had said to the Pharisees there in 11 and 12. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Notice there's not even an exception clause in Mark. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Jesus on remarriage, he clarifies and also specifies what constitutes adultery or sin, even in the case of remarriage after divorce. Now remember, we're talking here about remarriage after divorce. Not about remarriage in general. Not about remarriage after death. I would say that the Bible actually views remarriage after death as a very good thing. This is a particular instance of remarriage after divorce. And again, let me say quickly two things. First, Jesus is progressive in his view of the equality of men and women. And I use that word progressive because we've had it co-opted by people that don't like Jesus. But Jesus here represents a view that is progressive in a very good way. Notice that he says that if someone divorces his wife and marries another, that is a husband is committing adultery if he remarries after divorce, that's unbiblical. But also the same for the wife. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What he's saying is that there's equality among the sexes. Both male and female, both husband and wife, both men and women have the same rights. They are equal in God's eyes. And so he is here doing away in large part with the clear sexism of his culture and of the ancient Jewish world. Jesus here is balanced and fair. He applies the same principle to both men and women, to husbands and wives. That's the first thing. Okay, second thing about remarriage. When it comes to remarriage after a divorce, the most succinct way to put it is this. If the divorce was biblically legitimate, remarriage is biblically legitimate. Generally, that's the best way to put it. If the divorce was biblically legitimate, remarriage is biblically legitimate. That is, if you are a divorced person and your spouse either had an affair or abandoned you, then you are free to remarry as long as the person you're remarrying is a Christian. Okay. Now, there are some complex issues that fit in here that also... Uh, lead me to say, generally, uh, that if you are divorced for unbiblical reasons and want to remarry, then you must clearly settle all obligations with your former spouse before you do so. That is, you must seek her forgiveness and make sure that she no longer wants to pursue reconciliation with your first marriage. And then, in some cases, I believe, you are free to remarry. Now, there's many, many things that need to be said here. Often many cases are complex and have a lot of issues surrounding them, and I'd love to talk to you about that if something I've said concerns you. But I will say this finally regarding remarriage. If you had an early marriage, a first marriage, and you were divorced, or you got divorced, you filed for divorce, and that divorce was clearly unbiblical, you did not have biblical grounds, there was no adultery, there was no abandonment, you just did it because you were tired of it or wanted out. And then say you became a Christian later on in life and you got remarried and you've been remarried for 15, 20 years maybe and you've got a good marriage. Maybe you've had children in this marriage or stepchildren. I I want you to hear that the Bible does not say that your second marriage is not valid. It does say oftentimes that your second marriage is sinful in the initial instance, but that doesn't invalidate the entire marriage and your entire life together. A similar parallel would be if you had a child out of wedlock early in life or later in life or whenever in life, uh, that was an instance of sin normally. Yet that doesn't invalidate your entire life as a parent. It doesn't mean that your relationship with your child is 
always and constantly sinful or a result of sin because God is gracious and, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, wants there to be peace. So marriage is a wonderful and full reflection and experience of the gospel of Jesus. And because God is gracious and loving, even those of us who have been divorced, rightly or wrongly, can still experience God's mercy and grace as we seek to believe in the gospel and to repent and turn from our sins. As I said at the outset, let me repeat here at the end. Grace is sufficient. God loves people who have made mistakes, who have been burned, who have experienced heartache and hardship through the results of divorce. It's a part of being in a broken world. But Jesus came into a broken world to save people who are impacted by it, both on the inside and on the outside. And so let me encourage you to trust, to trust in the love of Jesus Christ for those who have been sinned against, who have sinned themselves, or who are living in the results of sin when it comes to the issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Let's pray.